Good evening. It's 7 o'clock, 28 degrees in St. Johnsbury, Friday, February 5th. I'm Bob Welch, and welcome to My World. In the headlines tonight, Vermont officials have had to respond to two separate incidents during virtual calls this week, which involved either a racial slur or questioning the validity of someone's identity. In Quebec, the era of building enormous hydroelectric power generating stations may be over. Also tonight, man-made ocean noise and a new report that delves into its effect on smaller ocean life as opposed to the big fish we normally read reports on. A story of a musician who lost his flute on the Chicago transit system during a layover on his way back to Boston, but then found it again. And a British Columbia man who helped a woman from Georgia who was on her way to her husband in Alaska, but got stuck in the snow. Then the planter's peanut people got wind of it, and they're thanking them. Northeast Kingdom and northern New Hampshire weather tonight. Uh, snow showers, low near 20. Looking at tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds early, then clouding up. High 27. Tomorrow night, a few clouds from time to time, a low near 5. A wind south-southwest, 5 to 10 miles an hour. Sunday, cloudy snow showers developing in the afternoon, high 27. And for Monday, partly cloudy, high 20. Tuesday, some snow showers, high 28. This is Bob's World. Vermont officials responded to two separate incidents that occurred during virtual calls this week, including the use of a slur and a question around the validity of indigenous identity. The Burlington Free Press reports one came Tuesday from cable access channel NEKT-TV host Steve Merrill. That was during Governor Phil Scott's COVID update conference after he asked a question about indigenous identity that some considered offensive. The incidents led to denouncements from state officials and the public. Merrill, a host on the cable access channel serving Comcast territory in Orleans County, asked a question Tuesday about the state's vaccine rollout. Specifically, he wondered, how would one qualify as indigenous? Do you use the Elizabeth Warren standard with high cheekbones? Merrill said, following by asking if the state will just take people's word for it. Jane Lindholm of Vermont Public Radio, who typically live tweets the governor's press conferences, called out Merrill after this question. Quote, can I just acknowledge how offensive this line of questioning is, she tweeted. We're getting into things like the one-drop rule and a long-standing racist history in this country of quantifying and qualifying people based on rubrics of race and ethnicity and who gets to count. Others responded to her tweet expressing similar frustrations with Merrill. Rebecca Kelly, spokesperson with the governor's office, indicated on VT Digger that she had gotten complaints from people regarding Merrill's question, prompting her to review some of his past work. In another incident, a resource systems group consultant could be heard whispering the N-word during a Senate Transportation Committee meeting on Wednesday. Stephen Gale chalked up his use of the slur to a mental health issue and indicated it was an outburst while reading a news report of course, not realizing Zoom was on, according to reporting by VT Digger, which archived the video before it was removed. Gale has reportedly been fired. 
Up north, the Globe and Mail reports the era of building big hydroelectric power dams in the province of Quebec may be over. Premier Francois Legault's government yesterday announced that it is moving forward with a new $600 million wind power development called Apuyat, a private project with an installed capacity of 200 megawatts located near Port Cartier along the north shore of the St. Lawrence River and owned 50-50 by Borelex Inc. and the Inu communities which surround the project. Provincial Utility Hydro-Quebec has agreed to purchase power from Apuyet at a cost of six cents per kilowatt hour. At that rate, the project's economics rival and uh, even surpassed that of new hydroelectric power, according to the Premier. Premier says this has changed the game completely. Wind power is becoming a sector that's hyper-competitive. Mr. Legault telling reporters at a press conference, I don't think there are any new dam projects that could beat that cost. More than 90% of Quebec's electricity mix comes from massive hydroelectric dams built over the decades by Hydro-Quebec and from the partially owned Churchill Falls project in Labrador that's partly owned with the province of Newfoundland. The province wants to harness that hydropower to shift its economy away from oil while boosting electricity exports to the United States. But the Premier's comments suggest renewables such as wind and solar will play an increasing role in that effort. Quebec's most recent major new dam project is called the Romaine. It's a 1,550-megawatt hydroelectric complex on the Rivière Romaine that's north of the town of Harvey saint pierre in the eastern portion of the province. Construction began 11 years ago, and three of its four generating stations have already come online in the last uh, year, scheduled to be operational next year, uh, according to Hydro-Quebec. German prosecutors have confiscated more than $60 million worth of Bitcoin from a fraudster. There's only one hitch. They can't unlock the money because he won't give them the password. The man was sentenced to jail and has since served his term, maintaining his silence throughout while police repeatedly failed efforts to crack the code to access more than 1,700 Bitcoin. That was according to a prosecutor in the Bavarian town of Kempton. We asked him, but he didn't say. That's prosecutor Sebastian Murr told, telling Reuters today, perhaps he doesn't know. Perhaps he's keeping it from us. Bitcoin is stored on software known as a digital wallet that is secured through encryption. A password is then used to decrypt the key to open the wallet and access the Bitcoin. When a password is lost, the user can't open it. The fraudster had been sentenced to more than two years in jail for covertly installing software on other computers to harness their power to mine or produce Bitcoin. When he went behind bars, his Bitcoin stash would have been worth a fraction of its current value. The price of Bitcoin has surged over the past year. It hit a record of $42,000 in January. Today, it's trading at $37,577. That's according to cryptocurrency and blockchain website Coindesk. This is Bob's World. This New York Times story that caught my attention today, it's about the ocean noise that human activities create and its cost, with particular attention to these smaller organisms. Although clownfish are conceived on coral reefs, they spend the first part of their lives as larvae, 
drifting in the open ocean. The fish are not yet orange-striped or even capable of swimming. When the baby clownfish grow big enough to swim against the tide, they hightail at home. The fish can't see the reef, but they can hear it snapping, grunting, gurgling, popping, and croaking. These noises make up the soundscape of a healthy reef, and larval fish rely on these soundscapes to find their way back to the reefs where they will spend the rest of their lives, that is, if they can hear them. But humans and their ships, seismic surveys, air guns, pile drivers, dynamite fishing, drilling platforms, speedboats, and even surfing have made the ocean an unbearably noisy place for marine life. That's according to a sweeping review of the prevalence and intensity of the impacts of ocean noise published yesterday in the journal Science. The paper, a collaboration among 25 authors from across the globe and various fields of marine acoustics, is the largest synthesis of evidence on the effects of oceanic noise pollution. Man-made noise often drowns out the natural soundscapes, putting marine life under immense stress. In the case of baby clownfish, the noise can even doom them to wander the seas without direction, unable to find their way home. Dr. Carlos Duarte is a marine ecologist at the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia and the lead author on the paper published yesterday and explains that in the ocean, visual cues disappear after tens of yards and chemical cues dissipate after hundreds of yards. But sound can travel thousands of miles and link animals across oceanic basins and in darkness. As a result, many marine species are impeccably adapted to detect and communicate with sound. Dolphins call one another by unique names. Toadfish hum, bearded seals trill, whales sing. Heck, radio transmissions cross oceans and carry along the ocean shoreline far easier than over land. Christine Urbay is the director of the Center for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University in Perth, Australia, and co-author of this report. Scientists have been aware of underwater man-made noise and how far it propagates for about a century, according to that author on the paper. But early research on how noise might affect marine life focused on how individual large animals responded to temporary noise sources such as a whale taking a detour around oil rigs during its migration and didn't focus on the smaller creatures. Dateline, Chicago, Illinois. Donald Rabin was on an elevated train in the Windy City, passing through on a layover before returning to Boston by plane. He realized too late that he was at his stop, Logan Square. That's on the blue line. And moved quickly to exit the train's doors in time. He's a 23-year-old graduate student at Berklee College of Music in Boston, and he made it to the top of the stairs at the station when he realized he left his flute on the train. And this wasn't just any flute. No, the Chicago Tribune reports Rabin's late grandmother left him money to buy the $22,000 gold and silver instrument when she died in 2016. It's his livelihood, he wrote in a Facebook post last Sunday that began with the words, Flute? emergency. The scramble to track down his treasured flute began. It would take a frantic search, a Facebook post, a message from a homeless man, help from a pawn shop owner, press coverage, 
and Chicago police before it ended up back in Rabin's hands. Rabin tells the Chicago Tribune he rode the Blue Line, that's the elevated train whose route through downtown begins at Chicago's O'Hare Airport, for four hours looking for it. He asked a Chicago Transit Authority employee to stop the train line. He filed a police report, scoured the CTA's lost and found, and spent the next couple of days reaching out to media outlets to try to spread the word. By Tuesday, the day he was set to return to Boston, he didn't think he'd see his, his prized flute again. He was just sitting on the plane just before he left O'Hare when a man commented on his Facebook post with a photo of the flute. The man, Lucas McKinney, told Ramin he and his wife, who are homeless, took it to a local pawn shop in exchange for a $500 loan. The owner of the pawn shop, Gabe Cocante, tells the Chicago Sun-Times after he saw a news report about the missing flute a couple of days after Miss Henny brought it in. Cocanti called the police and told them he had the flute. Chicago police advised him to hold on to it. The police showed up. They picked it up from the shop. So Rabin flew to Chicago after all this on Wednesday to get it and performed a couple of songs for police to show his gratitude. He also donated to a GoFundMe for McKinney and his wife helping them get back on their feet. Shared it on social media to say thanks for their role in getting the flute back to him. Today, by the way, is Friday, February the 15th, and you're listening to Bob's World, or uh, wherever you get your podcasts. After all, you're listening to this. The 36th day of 2021, with 329 days left in the year. Birthdays, financial writer Jane Bryant Quinn is 82. Football Hall of Famer Roger Staubach is 79. Racing Hall of Famer Daryl Waltrip is 74 years old. Actress Laura Linney, 57. World Golf Hall of Famer Jose Maria Olazabal is 55. Actor-comedian Chris Parnell, 54. Singer Bobby Brown, 52. Actor Michael Sheen, also 52. Country singer Sarah Evans is 50. Drummer Graham Sirota of Echo Smith is 22. In 1631, the founder of Rhode Island, Roger Williams, and his wife Mary arrived in Boston from England. They'd later flee and create Rhode Island after they had had it with the Puritans in Boston. But that came later. 1811, George, the Prince of Wales, was named Prince Regent due to the mental illness of his father, Britain's King George III. 1917, Mexico's present constitution was adopted by the Constitutional Convention in Santiago de Cuarto. The U.S. Congress passed over President Woodrow Wilson's veto an act severely curtailing Asian immigration. In 1918, during World War I, the Cunard liner SS Tuscania, which was transporting about 2,000 American troops to Europe, was torpedoed by a German U-boat in the Irish Sea with a loss of life of more than 200. In 1922, the first edition of Reader's Digest was published. 1937, Franklin Delano Roosevelt proposed increasing the number of U.S. Supreme Court justices. The proposal, which failed Congress, drew accusations that Roosevelt was attempting to pack the nation's highest court. In 1971, Apollo 14 astronauts Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell stepped onto the surface of the moon in the first of two lunar excursions. Former Nazi Gestapo official Klaus Barbie in 1983 was expelled from Bolivia 
He was then brought to Lyon, France to stand trial. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. He died in 1991. In 1993, President Bill Clinton signed the Family and Medical Leave Act, granting workers up to 12 weeks unpaid leave for family emergencies. In 1991, white separatist Byron de la Beckwith was convicted in Jackson, Mississippi, of murdering civil rights leader Medgar Evers in 1963 and was immediately sentenced to life in prison. Beckwith died January 21, 2001, at age 80. And in 2001, four disciples of Osama bin Laden went on trial in New York City in the 1998 bombings of two U.S. embassies in Africa. The four were convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole. This is Bob's World. Something for last now. A British Columbia man who gained widespread attention for helping drive a stranded American family to the Alaska-Canada border will soon be able to do that trip in a new car. Gary Bath is a Canadian rancher and military veteran in Fort St. John, British Columbia. He helped Lynn Marchezzo and her family after they were stranded in a November snowstorm on their way to join her husband in Alaska. That good deed has been recognized by planters, the American nut people. They are giving both Mr. Bath and Ms. Marchezzo new cars and a lifetime supply of peanuts. Mr. Bath tells the Globe and Mail by telephone, they reached out through Facebook Messenger trying to get a hold of us. Their message was like, I know this is going to sound crazy, but trust us it's true. I was pretty shocked. I thought the story had its run and we were done. He can also rhyme. The nut company's gifts are part of a decision to forego an expensive ad for the Super Bowl. This year, instead, it is using the money to recognize those who have helped others. The company says it's spending $5 million U.S. dollars on the giveaway. Ms. Marcheso and her two children were traveling from Georgia to Alaska in early November to join her husband when she got stuck near a highway lodge for temporary workers in Pink Mountain, B.C., her car lacked winter tires, and she wasn't used to driving in the snow. Mr. Bath heard about the situation through friends on Facebook and told his wife. She was done reading it, and she said, Why are you still here and not helping her out there right now? Mr. Bath said the two families have become very close, and he talks to Ms. Marches on nearly every day. He and his wife even sent Ms. Marches' children a Canadian gift package of what else? Ketchup chips? and Tim Hortons. Just because I may not mention it every night does not mean you can't call the Talkback line. It's at area code 802-467-0212. That's 802-467-0212. It's open 24 hours a day. You won't wake me up when you ring it at 2 a.m. Don't be shy. Leave your name and where you're calling from and give us your two cents with the caveat that your call may be used in future broadcasts. That's Bob's World for this Friday and for this week. I'm Bob Welch. Thank you for listening.